Right. Well, good morning to y'all. Good to see you all again. Well, if you got one of these bulletins today, I guess you already know what we're going to read. <laughs> see, some of you already got already already there. <laughs> so, anyhow, Revelation 19 is where we're going today, and we're going to read verses 11 through 16. So, when you find uh, when you find that Revelation 19, would you please stand for reading God's word? All right, Revelation chapter 19, beginning here in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. You rule over all, absolutely. And you rule in righteousness, always doing what is right, what is good, what is just. Lord, we want to stay before you this morning with attitudes of Worship, praise to you for your greatness, praise to you for your mercy, mercy on rebels who have stood against you and your kingdom, and yet, by grace, you have chosen to save those of us who are in Christ, all of grace, only because of your love and mercy. Lord, we thank you for that this morning. Lord, help us every day as we navigate this life and as we deal with all of the problems that we're confronted with and all of the bad reports that we're constantly bombarded with, some near and Uh, some from places far away. Help us to grasp this reality that you rule over all. King of kings. Lord of lords. Help us to see everything else through those lenses. And enable us, Lord, to give you the glory, the praise that you are due. Now, Lord, we pray for that help with this passage. Lord, use it to turn our thoughts, our focus upward, that we may in some measure here uh, once again behold you and your glory. 
Let the truth of Your Word penetrate the very depths of our being so that we are transformed by it and so that it doesn't just have no effect. Grant these things by the power of Your Holy Spirit, we pray. Again, for Your glory and honor. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Be seated. There is no true peace apart from a decisive victory. Um, a lot of times, you know, we, we, we dream about uh, peace in the world, right? Uh, it's kind of the... Not, not that I watch... Uh, uh, Beauty pageants, I don't. <laughs> Haven't in many, many years, I guess. I can't remember the last time. But they, isn't that kind of the classic, at least comedy, uh, answer when they, when they interview one of these ladies and they say, what, what do you want and what do you hope for out of life? And the answer comes back, world peace, world peace. But you know what? And one reason that's funny to us is because uh, there's a sense in which we all long for that. And yet, I guess the humor is there because it just seems unattainable, doesn't it? Doesn't, doesn't seem like reality, especially if you watch news or read a newspaper or anything like that, look online um, at, at what's going on in the world. It just doesn't seem like reality. Um, but the Bible not only teaches us that real peace is, um, is well, it, it's real. It's a reality. Um, but it, it tells us that there's coming a time um, when, as believers on Jesus Christ, we will actually experience it. We have um, a foreshadowing of it now, even in our experience with Christ in this world. But there's coming a day when there will be real peace. But it has to come through a decisive victory. That's that's the only way. That's the only way to have true peace. You know, we've been watching uh, from time to time some of these um, movies, uh, The Lord of the Rings, and... uh, uh, you know, I had never read the books previous to watching the movie, so it, it takes a few times going through the movie to, to finally understand what's going on, at least for me it does, um, to finally understand, uh, you know, what all is going on, the theme of it. Um, and we watched those, and the other one I was thinking of uh, is the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and, you know, when you're, when you're looking at the, the Lord of the Rings, for example, um, there are several themes that are there, and and uh, and I think even in terms of main characters, you know, you, you, you basically start out thinking the hero is is uh, Frodo. If, if you're familiar with the movie, you'll know, or the books, you'll know what I'm talking about. But you, you basically start out thinking that the hero is Frodo, and then after a, a while, maybe a time or two of watching it or, or whatever, or letting it sink in, you kind of think, realize, well... Really, it seems like the real hero here is uh, is Sam, Samwise. You know, I mean, he he was the the bedrock for Frodo that that kept him going. But then there's this other theme, um, at least in the uh, in in the first ones. There's this uh, uh, well, the, the first ones that were produced. They're later in the series. Um, the first ones produced in movie form, The Lord of the Rings. There's this theme with um, Strider, Aragon. And kind of the whole thing, the reason the world is all messed up is because of the weakness of men. And Aragon, 
in, in this uh, series, stays faithful. And so he emerges victorious in that sense. So, so there's another uh, hero theme there where you actually have a man, and again, if you know the story, you know that the other characters, the other characters are not human beings. You know, there's elves and dwarves and, and uh, hobbits and so on. Um, but here you have a, a man, a human being, who actually emerges as hero. And not only that, but he is a king who, in the end, um, because of his faithfulness and because of the faithfulness of Frodo and Samwise and the others, uh, he, is, he is crowned a victorious king. And one of the things that I appreciate about those movies and one of the reasons that I bring them up is, uh, I know after, after this is going to sound strange talking about any, any, uh, any sense of reality after I've just mentioned dwarves and elves and, and uh, hobbits, but, but, but they have an element of reality in this sense. that they, they convey the idea that there must be decisive victory over evil before there can be peace. And no doubt, the, the reason for that in both of those series, uh, series is the Lord of the Rings and also um, the Chronicles of Narnia. No doubt, the reason for that is because the two authors, um, well, for one, they professed Christ, but also they lived through world wars. And that's really, especially World War II, that's really the uh, kind of the backdrop for for those for those movies and for the mindset and and it comes through you you can tell um, that the authors um, have experienced a world with that kind of evil and a world where complacency wouldn't suffice i mean there there, there had to be action taken and there had to be in the end there had to be decisive victory. Just a few days ago, um, we commemorate the, um, the dropping of the atomic bombs over Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nagasaki. And there's still debate to this day, you know, 70 years later. Was it right? Was it wrong? Morally speaking. Was it the right thing to do or not? And I'm not going to argue one way or the other on that this morning. I just want to say this. What it did accomplish was a decisive victory. And we've had a, at least what we could call a, a relative peace um, pretty much ever since because of that, and especially in terms of our relationship with Japan, which is very good now, because of a decisive victory. There's a, a part or, or a characteristic of the person of Jesus Christ that is, is, is not hidden in the Scripture. It's not, it's not strange to the Scripture. But a lot of people don't like to think about it. And that is um, that He is presented as a divine warrior of sorts. In fact... Um, a divine warrior king, sort of like, only much better, but sort of like uh, Aragon that I was talking about earlier in the Lord of the Rings. A warrior king. 
And what Jesus accomplishes for his kingdom, of course by that I mean for his people, which includes you and I, all believers in Jesus Christ, what Jesus accomplishes is the decisive victory. Now, we've been going through the book of Revelation and we've talked a great deal about this cosmic struggle that's going on um, and much of the much of the explanation that we we've we've seen uh, has to do with things that. In fact, I think there's a really good balance here that we we lose a lot of times. But here, here's how it plays out. Much of the description we've seen has to do with this cosmic struggle taking place in the spiritual realm, right? So you've got the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And of course, God is spirit. Scripture tells us. And Satan is a spiritual being, and um, the, the angel, all of the angelic beings, good and bad, what, what we re- normally refer to as the angels would be those the Scripture calls the elect angels, those who um, uh, remain faithful to God. Um, they are in constant struggle with the evil angelic beings that we, we refer to as demons, and uh, it's, it's very interesting. A lot of times we get a little insight into, into things that go on there. You know, you think about the book of Daniel and, and um, Daniel praying and Michael, uh, the archangel coming to answer Daniel's prayer, but then saying that he was hindered by the, uh, the prince of Persia, which seems to be a reference to some kind of, uh, of demon, demonic, demonic power. So occasionally we get little insights into those things, and it's very interesting, although we're really, really limited on what we have. You know, we can't know a whole lot about it because the Lord doesn't give us a whole lot about it. But here's the other side of the here's here's where the balance is. Even though even though we're 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 made aware of those things and we're 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 uh, we are um, taught and assured that those things are real and they're really taking place uh, and so forth uh, in this realm that we can't see into. I mean we we have to have uh, God give us revelation like we have here in the Bible. Uh, because we can't see into that realm. Um, even though all that is going on, the reason that it, is, that it is relevant for you and I is because much of it plays out in the physical realm that we do live in and that we do see and that we do interact with on a daily basis. In fact, much of it plays out in uh, ways that to us would seem very mundane. And... Uh, I'll just give an example here with the, with the danger of, of uh, sliding off into a totally different sermon, but I'll try not to do that, okay? <laughs> but here's an example. You think of just relationships in the home. That's what Paul's dealing with in, in Ephesians 5, for example, relationship between husband and wife. And it's no coincidence or accident that he deals with that right before he goes into spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. Because where the battle plays out for you and I is in our daily living. How do I act toward my wife? How do I act toward my children? How do I act toward my boss? How do I act toward um, the person on the highway that won't put their blinker on? You know, and all, That's where it plays out for you and I. Or, how do I respond to those around me who need Christ, who I know are lost? You know, am, am I am I faithful in presenting the gospel and and living it out before them? Well, this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, for the Christian 
in this um, in, in our role in this cosmic battle that's going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Because we as Christians are part of, and this is one thing that has been driven home to us uh, in, in this book as we've been going through it. We as Christians are part of the kingdom of God. Here and now. Now it's true that um, the fullness of it is yet to come. And in terms of our study, it's getting really, really close. <laughs> this is what, what we're seeing in, the latter, in, in this chapter in 19 and then in, of course in 20 and 21, 22. So in terms of our study, we're getting really close to it. Um, in terms of our experience, it won't be until we leave this world and you know, Christ returns. Uh, you, you, what a glorious passage, you know, what, what David read earlier in Matthew 24, where Jesus is describing His second coming in power and glory. That's the day we're looking for, and that's the day that we're living for, and that's the day when our salvation comes to its fullness, the consummation. But even now, as Christians, we're members of the kingdom of God. And everybody that is outside of the kingdom of God stands opposed to it. There's no neutral territory. It's not like we have, uh, you know, we have Christians and then we have um, those who are opposed to Christianity and then over here we have those who don't care one way or the other. That's, that's not the case. The way that the Bible presents, presents it is a, 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 a clear dichotomy. You're either in Christ or outside of Christ. So you're either for Him or against Him. Jesus Himself said, you either gather with me or you're scattering abroad with me or against me. So the, the, the struggle that we can't see in the spiritual realm has direct implications for everyday life, for you and for me. Because we represent the kingdom of God in this world, and this world represents the kingdom of Satan. Now, maybe the first time you read, or read, whichever, if you haven't read it yet, maybe the first time you read The Lord of the Rings, or saw the movie, or The Chronicles of Narnia, or something like that, or any other movie or book where that kind of struggle is going on, the first time you read, you wonder, who's, who's going to win? Who's going to come out on top in this struggle? And most of us, you know, go into those kinds of movies and books and things hoping that the good guy will win, right? So here's, here's the good news. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And all of this struggle that we, we, have, we have gone over week after week after week after week with this constant war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Satan terrorizing the church. God pouring out judgment on the world. All, all of this struggle that we've been talking about week after week after week is now, is now coming to a close. And in these final chapters we'll see. And we're starting to see now in this one that Jesus emerges victorious. Now, this has already been communicated, but, I, but here it's just, it's just communicated in a little bit uh, 
uh, more striking or, or more glorious um, terms and pictures. So John says in verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. I remember all the way through here, and this, that's an easy picture really, but white um, just basically represents um, righteousness, right? A white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. So here's what we're zeroing in on this morning in the time remaining. The divine warrior king. And here's some description. John says, verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire. I mean, he, he really... Um, of course, John is seeing this and relating what he's seeing, but the Lord uh, here in the form of these visions really gives us a, 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 an intimidating scene, right, of Christ's return, at least intimidating if you don't know Him. I remember years ago, somebody um, rented at least one of these billboards. It was on I-20 over in Shreveport, and there was, it was you know, a huge billboard with this huge... Silhouette. I thought it was done pretty uh, cleverly. Um, huge silhouette of somebody on a horse. So you just see the shadow, you know. You can tell it's somebody on a horse. And at the bottom it said, Guess who's coming? And boy, is he mad. Now, <laughs> I mean... I mean, that uh, that comes to me a lot over you know just over the years of remember that but just 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 think about this for a moment that is not the image of Jesus that most people like and yet it's accurate it is one that the Bible gives us now um, he came the first time to save right and we don't want to lose sight of that we don't want to lose sight of God's mercy. But we also don't want to lose sight of His holiness and His judgment. The fact that His wrath will be executed in its fullness. So He's seen here as having eyes like a flame of fire. And on His head are many diadems, crowns. In other words, uh, just symbolic of his, of his rule. His authority, His sovereignty. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. And He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some people think that refers to um, His atoning work. In other words, Jesus um, died on the cross for our sins. And so here is a, a reference to that. Um, so... He, he, he comes in a white robe, but, but you can see the, the blood on his robe as a reminder of his, his sacrifice. Uh, I suppose that's a possibility, but I, but I really don't think that's what's going on here. Um, let, me, let me give you a few verses here from Isaiah 63, um, where Isaiah describes the vengeance of God. And if, you, if you want to turn there, uh, at least hold your place in Revelation, because we'll come back to that. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? 
He who is splendid in His apparel, marching in the greatness of His strength. It is I, this is like the Lord replying here, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like His who treads in the winepress? Keep that imagery because we're going to see it in a moment again in Revelation. But notice he, um, the writer here notices his, apparel's, his apparel is red. Why is your apparel red and your garments like His who treads in the winepress? Verse 3 comes the response. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. That, I believe, is exactly what is playing out here before the eyes of John in Revelation chapter 19. So, verse 13 says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The suggestion, I think, is the blood of His enemies. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. So there's a little bit of description about this white horse rider. Many diadems, in other words, He has power and authority. Um, He's a king. He's coming in judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his robe dipped in blood. Yet, he assures us, right, that he conducts himself in righteousness. The one sitting on this horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And that gets us to the second point here. Why does he come? Why does he come? He comes to make war, to judge and make war. And I think probably here, um, those are not intended to be two different things, um, but the same thing. He, he comes to judge and make war. And we've been seeing this again. I've, I've mentioned several times, uh, a lot of the, the imagery that we've gone through is, is telling the same story, just in different fashion, using different images. Um, different j- different pictures, but telling the same story. So, so we're, we're getting that once again um, as we're, we're coming to the, the close here. He comes to make war, to judge and to make war. Well, who's he going to make war with? Well, the world, the nations. In righteousness, he judges and makes war, and he does so with a sword. Look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And by the way, um, I think we'll be included in that. <laughs> uh, and there again, you've got the, the, the white raiment, so um, representing holiness, purity. And we come following him. There's a a quote from the book of Enoch, which Jude actually quotes in his letter, um, that says he will come with ten thousands of his saints, believers. And look at verse 15. 
Here's, here's the weapon. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Um, I'm going to take you to another passage here, and, and, and there's no way to have time to go to every one. If, if you will watch, like in, in your own study, uh, if you have a Bible with, um, even, even if you don't have a study Bible, your Bible's probably got marginal uh, references, either in the center column or, or at the bottom. And, and a lot of times the, the editors are really good about putting good references there that will tell you where these, where the terminology or the thoughts are coming from. And so, of course, in the book of Revelation, it is full of references to the Old Testament. Sometimes they are direct quotes, but not always. A lot of times it's just either using the same type wording or pictures or whatever. Um, you know, like the day of, day of the Lord, for example, comes out of uh, uh, a lot of the imagery used here comes out of uh, Joel chapter 3, um, the imagery of the wine press and so forth. Um, so, um, so watch your marginal notes because they, they're, they're great help in that way. So what about here in verse 15? From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations. He's coming to judge and make war. In doing that, he's going to strike down the nations. That, that's, in this case, that's a reference to the world who stands in opposition to Christ. Um, and the language here is taken from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Um, let me read a little bit of Psalm 2, and you'll see that uh, none of this is reactionary. I mean, all of this has been God's plan all along. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ or His anointed, the Hebrew term Messiah. Does this sound familiar, by the way? Because this is what we've been seeing all the way through Revelation, isn't it? The nations rage. They set themselves against the Lord and against His Christ, His anointed. Verse 3, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's in quotations marks, uh, quotation marks because it's as if the nations were saying that. In other words, we're not going to be under the rule of this Christ. That's what they're saying. We're going to, we're going to break His bonds apart and cast away His cords from us. We are not going to be bound by this Christ. We, we will not have this man reign over us. But look at verse 4. Psalm 2.4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 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 The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath. Notice that. He will speak to them. What, what does John say He comes to make war with in Revelation 19? What is coming from His mouth? There's a sword coming from His mouth, right? Hebrews um, 4.12 says the, the Word of God is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the degree of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give 
and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is where that wording is coming from in Revelation 19. Here is the fulfillment of it. What the psalmist was saying thousands of years before, by the, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is now seeing um, in, in, in vivid form uh, play out right before his eyes. Still, um, yet to come, at least in its fullness. I have to come back to that in a minute. <clears throat> but, but John gets to watch it, a preview. He gets to see it play out. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. I'm back in Revelation 19.15. With which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Did you hear that? He will tread the winepress. Remember the imagery in Isaiah 63? He has blood on his garments because he's been treading out the winepress on the day of his vengeance. That same imagery, is, as I mentioned earlier, is also in Joel chapter 3 when he talks about the day of the Lord. This is it. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. <clears throat> and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he gives us some description and he tells us why he's coming. He's coming to judge and to make war. But now who is this divine warrior king? Well, he makes that plain as well. Look back again to verse 12. He says, His eyes are like a flame of fire. Oh, well, let me back up further than that, actually, because in verse 11, uh, it says that he is called faithful and true. And Jesus uses uh, that terminology to refer to himself. Um, I believe it's in the second chapter in his letter to Smyrna. calls himself the faithful and true one. And everything he does is right and just. He's faithful in all of his all of his promises. And then he says he has a name written which no one knows but himself. But I wonder because you, you get just be below that, and it says the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So the name which no one knows but himself. I wonder if that's not being revealed right there. In the next verse, the Word of God. Either way, He is the Word of God. And if if you're familiar with um, John's writings at all, you know in the Gospel of John, that's how he opens up, right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was divine. So he's telling us something about this 
warrior king here, and that's why I call him the divine warrior king, because this is Jesus, and he is God, coming to judge and make war. So he's the word of God. That is, he is the one who has always existed in the beginning. The idea there is, I mean, it takes you right back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, right? So it takes you right back there, and John says, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, when everything else came into being, He, the Word, already was. When everything came... Think about that for a moment. When everything came into being, He already was being. That means He's eternal. He he never came into being. In fact, he clarifies it when he goes on to say, the Word was God. So this is a divine warrior king. Jesus, the same Word that John is talking about in John 1. And there's some reasons, I won't go too much into that. Uh, there's some reasons why he's called the Word of God. And I think probably one of the primary ones is, um, because when you think of words, you, don't, don't you think in terms of communication? expressing yourself. So when you think of Jesus as the Word of God, as He is called here, He is God communicating Himself to us. God making Himself known to us. God expressing Himself in a way that, that, that we can grasp. He lays aside His own glory and becomes a human being. And He, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is the exact representation of God. The express image, the radiance of His glory. So He's the the perfect expression. Boy, how many many times, you know, when when I'm saying something, do I wish I could express it perfectly. <laughs> and, and that, of course, that never happens. I never realized that. But Jesus is the perfect expression of God to humanity. He's the Word of God. And then finally, in verse 16, we're told that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Back in chapter 15... Verse 3 says, um, They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And then in chapter 17, verse 14, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. By the way, that's another way of referring to the armies that are with Him here uh, in chapter uh, 19, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 14. So he's, he's the very Word of God. That is, He is God. He's the divine warrior King. In fact... Not just a king, but king of kings, the king of kings, and lord of lords. Just emphasizing his absolute rule over all. Remember the cry of the nations. Why do the nations rage? 
The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against His Christ because they don't want to be under His rule. And He rules over all. But of course, what we saw there and what we're seeing here is that that notwithstanding, He rules over all. He reigns supreme. Now, let me say a couple things here. And we're done. When is this happening? When is this happening? And here's, here's what I want us to get. I, I think there, there's this constant, uh, what one writer calls the overlap of the ages that we're, that we're, that we're constantly seeing here. So, it, it, this is a, a, a common paradox in the, in the uh, New Testament especially, that for, Christian, uh, for Christianity, that we live in the already and the not yet. And sometimes in our minds, and you know, maybe I'm the only one that has this problem, but probably not. Sometimes in our minds, we want, we want the lines to be perfectly clear. You know, draw the lines clear and plain. Let, give, give me a, give me something, you know, we, this is so common with the book of Revelation. Give me something chronological. You know, here, and then here, then we move to this, and then we move to that. And in fact, a lot of people try to interpret the book of Revelation that way, and they, and they lay it all out nice and neat because they want it to be nice and neat and pretty and easy to, um, to grasp, you know, on our own level. But I think, again, a lot of times this, this concept of the already, this paradox of the already and the not yet, like it or not, is just where we are in the Scripture. Now, if I haven't hopefully gotten you thoroughly confused, I'll, uh, let me just try to be really, really plain here. I think what's going on here, the we're, we're, same thing we've been seeing over and over and over in this book. Although we are, we're getting to the consummation, the, the very end of the end. And yet, some of the descriptions that we have here is much like what we've already been seeing in chapter after chapter after chapter. So just for example, when does Jesus come and conquer with His Word? Or let me say it another way, because I, I started out in the beginning talking about decisive victory. There can be no peace unless there is a decisive victory. When did that occur for the Christian? Somebody give me an answer. When does that occur for the Christian? When does God give us that decisive victory? At the cross. At the cross. <laughs> Jesus came. And don't miss this. I mean, I mean, this is a glorious picture here. I'm, 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 you know, this is all part of it. I'm not trying to minimize. This is glorious. I'm, in fact, I don't think I am... Um, separating, and I'm trying to make the point that it all comes together. Jesus comes as warrior king. Listen, not just at the consummation, although that, that is when it's going to be manifest to all. When Christ returns in glory and all the nations are gathered before Him in judgment, then there's not, nobody's going to be able to stand up and say, you know what, all religions are the same, and this Jesus is no different from, uh, you know, this Christianity is no different from Hinduism or Islam. Nobody's going to be able to say that at that point. His lordship, his, his, the fact that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, sovereign Lord, is going to be manifest to all at that point. And we're not there yet. 
But when he came the first time, he came to do battle. And he did. He, he did it in the wilderness. When Satan came at him with everything that he had, trying to get him to cave and compromise and avoid the cross. And he refused. And he emerged victorious. And every time he was tempted by men, harassed by the Pharisees and others, or every time he was confronted by a demon-possessed person or something like that, he did war, battle, and he emerged victorious. And then the ultimate was when he went to the cross and he laid down his own life. And this, this is one thing in, in the Chronicles of Narnia that Lewis captures pretty well, not perfectly, but pretty well, with Aslan. It looks like his defeat, and in reality, it's the greatest victory. What Jesus was doing in emptying Himself of His glory, taking on the form of a man, living as a, a human being, suffering at the hands of sinners, even to the point of being crucified, mocked and crucified. And all of that that looks so much like defeat, He was doing battle. And He was winning. And you even see you know, Him wielding the sword. Again, think about Him facing... Um, Satan in the wilderness. And what does he do? Satan comes at him with these temptations and Jesus comes right back with a sword out of his mouth. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I mean, he, he, he's wielding the sword. And he was wielding it when he was facing the Pharisees. Wielding it, on the cross, when he's quoting Psalm 22, what I'm saying is this. The only way to have true peace is for there to be a decisive victory. And that decisive victory has occurred. It has occurred. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. God wants us to live this life How, however the struggle is playing out in, in your own experience. He wants us to live this life with the understanding that the decisive victory has been accomplished. And because of that, we can be at peace. Already and not yet. <laughs> There's still some, st still some skirmishes going on, aren't they? The day's coming when that too will end. And there will be Perfect peace. No experience with sin. But even now, brothers and sisters, and I'm done. I just, I just want to leave us with this thought. Even now, we need to get this. The next time, next time I'm tempted to, 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 to talk in a, in a bad manner to my wife or my, my child or to the guy, you know, that pulls out in front of me or, 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 or not to just do what I know I should do or not do what I know I shouldn't do. Or when I'm tempted to worry about something that I shouldn't worry about, 
we ought to remember that the decisive victory has been won. Listen, we had brave men and women fighting. I, I used World War II earlier. Think about that battle. Fighting not knowing what the outcome would be. We're in battle knowing what the outcome is. And that can bring peace to the soul now and will eventually be peace for our whole man when there's no more sin, no more war. Would you stand, please? Jesus is the war, uh, the warrior, the warrior king, and He's won. He's won the war. Let's close with a word of prayer. Um, and we'll be dismissed. Brother Richard, you mind praying for us?